Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are sobering words that we just heard. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you said that to people who believed in you. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Father, I pray that everyone here this morning would hear the word of God and abide in the word of God. We need your help for that. I'm so grateful that you haven't left us alone. You haven't left me alone here and you haven't left any of us alone. You've sent the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts, to convict us of sin and bring us the gift of illumination. So would you do that now, Lord? Would you turn the lights on, as it were? Would you help us to see wonderful things in your word and incline us toward the scriptures this morning? Father, we we stand in desperate need of your help as we open our Bibles. So we trust now that you will come and that we will walk away changed. We want to meet you afresh, Lord Jesus. So do that work now through your spirit, we ask, for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, trusting that you have a Bible open to the gospel according to John, we're going to pick up our study this morning in John chapter 8 and verse 12. The gospel of John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. And for those among us who have been carefully charting our progress through John's gospel, I hope you'll remember that the last sermon that we heard from this book ended in chapter 7, verse 52. Nevertheless, we are picking up the exposition in John chapter 8, verse 12. That should raise some questions, I think. There's a whole story that we appear to be skipping. John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. It's the famous account of the woman caught in adultery. Why are we doing that? Well, in our study of Holy Scripture, a text like John 7:53 to 8:11 comes along once in a very long while. Uh, about as often as the weather that we had last weekend. I can count on two fingers how many times we've run into this phenomenon in the eight and a half years I've had the privilege to preach here. Uh, One of them was last week. Um, This really happened in in two different ways. Uh, Canceling our worship gathering has only happened twice in my time as pastor of this church, and coming into a, a text like this has only happened twice. We can count on two fingers how many times we've encountered this phenomenon we're going to see before us in our Bibles. The one other one was several Easter's ago, Mark chapter 16. So in the Gospel of John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, 11, what do we find in the vast majority of our English Bibles? What do we see with regard to this text? We see brackets, double brackets, footnotes, all kinds of notes, right? Why? It's because of the near universal agreement from scholars all over the world today that these verses are not original with John's gospel. 
Why is that? Well, there are reasons. Uh, there are good reasons, as a matter of fact. And I'd like to give us four reasons on the front end of this sermon why we're not going to hear from this paragraph today. First, the paragraph, the story of the woman caught in adultery, interrupts the narrative flow of John's gospel. It interrupts the narrative flow of John's gospel. Here, here's what I mean. Two weeks ago, Seth gave us chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 52. And today we pick up in chapter 8, verse 12. If you compare the context of chapter 7, verse 52, with the context of chapter 8, verse 12, the narrative is seamless. It's like two pieces of fabric that got ripped apart, and when you put them back together again, you see something very beautiful, something that John intended. John chapter 8, or rather John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching about himself and he's dealing with the Pharisees. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, he's teaching about himself and he's dealing with the Pharisees. But in John chapter 8, verse 9, the Pharisees leave him. You ever notice that? They're gone. And Jesus is standing alone with a woman. And then somehow, starting in verse 12, they're back again. Like they never left. Why? Because they never left. John chapter 8, verse 12 is continuing the narrative where it left off in chapter 7, verse 52. So the first reason why this paragraph is not original with John's gospel is one that we can all see. We can verify it with our eyes. The context is, is seamless between the two. And chapter 8, verses uh, well, 753 to 811 are, are interrupting it. Second reason, everyone deserves to know this, that for the first four centuries, first four centuries of the existence of John's gospel, this text, The Woman Caught in Adultery, it's absent in church history. If you have the English Standard Version, uh, you notice that inside single brackets it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Okay. That is a vast understatement. To be more specific, John 7, 53 to 811 is absent from every pre-5th century New Testament manuscript in existence. And if this account really is a part of the Gospel of John that he wrote, the silence of this story for centuries is inexplicable. Its utter absence from this Gospel for the first several centuries is the second reason why this paragraph shouldn't be thought to be original with the Gospel of John. Third reason. The first commentary ever written on this paragraph in John's Gospel didn't emerge until the year A.D. 398. A.D. 398. It was first commented upon by a scholar from Egypt known as Didymus the Blind. But up to that point... Not a single commentator in the early church breathes a whiff of this. And there were many who wrote commentaries on the Gospel of John. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, Hippolytus, John Chrysostom, plenty of others. And I've had the privilege to access them as I've been studying John's Gospel. What you find is when you open their commentaries, they go right up to chapter 7, verse 52, and then they move immediately to chapter 8, verse 12. So no matter when we date the writing of John's gospel, what's clear 
is that it took at least 300 years for a single Christian writer to take notice of it. So the third clue that this paragraph isn't original with John's Gospel is that none of the earliest church fathers comment on this story. Fourth and final reason has to do with the placement of this text in the New Testament. Again, if you have uh, a Bible with some footnotes here, you're going to be in a, at an advantage. Um, has to do with the placement of this story. When this story began to appear around the year 400 AD, nobody could decide where to put it in the New Testament. Some manuscripts place it where we see it today. Others place it right after John 7.36. Some after John 7.44. Some at the very end of John's gospel, right after chapter 21, verse 25. And other manuscripts stick it in Luke's gospel, in Luke 21.38. That's very unusual for a New Testament manuscript text. Very unusual. So the last reason that we take this text not to be original is that it's, it's a terribly unstable text. It floats all over the New Testament, and no one seems to quite know what to do with it. Now, here's what's interesting. This text is in all likelihood not original with the Bible. So last week, I was going to prepare a sermon and had prepared a sermon demonstrating that while this beloved text, because we love it, it's a beloved text, is not canonical, not part of the canon of Scripture, it is biblical. Um, Biblical in the sense, first of all, that I think it's accurate history. I don't doubt that this happened. Very few people doubt that this happened. This smells of Jesus. Secondly, there's nothing in this paragraph about the woman caught in adultery that would be inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. In other words, what this paragraph teaches is taught other places in the New Testament, every verse of it, at least in principle. And so I had that sermon basically ready to go a week ago Saturday when the polar vortex descended upon North America. And we started to wonder about the viability of worship last Sunday, whether to gather. And only half kidding, I I took that as an indication that maybe I shouldn't preach on this text. I found a way to do it. But perhaps we should let, I think, John 7, 53 to 8, 11 remain the sermon that we never heard. And if not because of the divine providence of a polar vortex, then at least the four reasons that I gave you, that it likely, in all likelihood, it's not part of what John included for his gospel. And that brings us to our text today. Look with me, if you will, at John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, picking right up at verse 52 from chapter 7, again he spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, starting here in verse 13, clear to the end of chapter 8, we have what amounts to a parenthesis. Now, this is a canonical, biblical, helpful parenthesis, Holy Spirit parenthesis. Jesus makes a claim about himself in verse 12. I am the light of the world. And you see what happens? The Pharisees break him off, practically midstream, and start to challenge him. And the rest of chapter 8 
is given over to the Pharisees' grilling of the Savior. And then by the end of the chapter, they're picking up stones and they're ready to kill him. And it's not until chapter 9, Lord willing, next week, that we're going to see our Lord pick up this image of I am the light of the world and begin to unfold it and press it into our lives in practical ways as the light of the world gives sight to the blind. Isn't this interesting? So that means that our text today, uh, John 8, 12 to 59, is a, is a holy rabbit trail of sorts. It's a, it's a divine, spirit-inspired digression. And it's also a window into the souls of unbelievers. Do you ever wonder what unbelievers are thinking? Folks that you love, that don't love Jesus. Well, they might think that you're okay, if not a little crazy, But don't you sometimes just wish you could step into the shoes of an unbelieving family member or colleague or coworker and just see things from their perspective? Maybe the way that things used to be for you before you became a Christian. To understand, to empathize with them. Wouldn't it be helpful to know where they're coming from? Let's not forget what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And did you know that's true for the Pharisees in this text? No temptation has overtaken them in their unbelief that is not common to every unbeliever on your list of five. The temptations may be different in degree, but not in kind. No temptation has overtaken these folks in chapter 8 that is not common to our folks on our list of five. John chapter 8 is a gift. As I look at it, it contains five truths about those that you love who are far from Christ. Five truths about those that you love who are far from Christ. So this new year, get inside the mind of your list of five. Get inside the mind of your list of five. Five truths about those that you love who are far from Christ. Number one. Jesus' claims to authority are threatening to them. Jesus' claims to authority are threatening to them. Look with me once again, beginning in chapter 8, verse 12, and we'll read to verse 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Therefore they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered them, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. 
If there's one thing that Jesus Christ claims for himself unequivocally throughout his entire life in ministry, it is authority, power, divine right. Imagine anyone on the planet saying these words today. I am the light of the world. You have to snicker. It wouldn't even come out of anyone's mouth. I know where I've come from and where I'm going. My judgment's true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself. That is ridiculous self-importance. Unless, of course, it's true. And the Pharisees call him on it in verse 13. You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony's not true. They're referring to Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Deuteronomy 19, 15, where the testimony of a single witness is not to be received under law. It needs to be corroborated by at least one other witness. Jesus says that too. So he responds, first off, that his message doesn't even stand in need of that kind of validation. But secondly, he says, okay, you you want a witness? God is my second witness. Verse 18, the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Okay, that's that's bold. That is audacious. And unbelievers know it. That is authority. And it is very threatening to those who want to be in charge of their own lives. And maybe a few other lives too. You can take it to the bank that many of your loved ones that are far from Jesus would resonate with the infamous lines of poetry from William Ernest Henley who wrote, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. That's what we want to believe apart from Jesus. We want to love those who are on our list of five well. We do. But in order to love them well, we need to know them well. We need to understand them well. And if they are far from Christ, you must believe me when I say that Jesus' claims to authority are threatening to them. There's no temptation that overtook these guys that's not common to people on our list of five. Second truth about folks on your list of five. Jesus' words about his work are confusing to them. Jesus' words about his work are confusing to them. Let's take a look at verse 21 to 30. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he was say, as he was saying these things, many 
believed in him. Okay. I know this may be against the way that you think, but if we're going to focus on our list of five for a minute, focus on the black letters, not the red letters for this point. Focus on the black letters. Verse 23, the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he said, I, where, you're going, I, where I'm going, you cannot come? Or verse 25, they said to him, who are you? Verse 27, they did not understand. This is Christianity 101, isn't it? And these guys are baffled. Who are you? His words about his work are confusing to them. You know, we, we tend to forget how long it's taken each of us to come to the Christian convictions that we have. Uh, for some of us raised in the church, it has been a lifetime of processing these things. And given the increasing number of folks all around us not raised in the church, imagine their learning curve as we seek to talk to them about the old, old story of Jesus and his love. At least the Pharisees were biblically literate, and they're lost. Imagine how it is for folks on your list of five trying to put the pieces together. This is confusing. Reminds me of the words of another poem. I've quoted this one before. It's from Beatrice Cleland, who writes, For me, t'was not the truth you taught, to you so clear, to me so dim, but that when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. That's how unbelievers think around us. What is so crystal clear to you is, is not clear to them. Now, that does not mean that what we say does not matter. Of course it doesn't. Our verbal witness to the truths of the gospel are irreplaceable. It's the message that must be believed. It's essential. But we do well to recognize how long it has taken us to get a handle on what we believe, the clarity that we enjoy today. Just like before you came to Christ, you're not so different. We're not so different than these Pharisees. Jesus' words about his work are confusing to them. Third truth. Jesus' message of liberation is lost on them. Jesus' message of liberation is lost on them. Now, this point does not actually take a whole lot of cultural translation. The Pharisees did not think they were enslaved to anyone because they were sons of Abraham. And the people on your list of five don't think they're enslaved because they are Americans. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. We live in the land of the free. 
the basic cultural assumptions and values in our great nation, and it's a great nation, are certain unalienable rights. One of them is liberty, freedom. Have you ever stopped to think how well the words of Jesus play in America? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The average American says, I am free. We've, we are the offspring of Americans. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Right? His message of liberation is often lost on people who believe themselves to be free. But you note in verse 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, unbelievers hear that, and though it's true, it tends to ring very hollow to them because of the way that they conceive of slavery. Why is that? Well, nearly 500 years ago, Martin Luther gave us an answer, a very good answer. In his classic, The Bondage of the Will, Luther writes the following, A man without the Spirit of God does not do evil against his will or under pressure as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it. But he does it spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness or volition is something which he cannot in his own strength eliminate, restrain, or alter. Luther says they go on willingly offering themselves as slaves. That's why sin doesn't feel like bondage to unbelievers. Did you notice that when you first became a believer, sin became a problem? You couldn't even sin right once you became a Christian. It just didn't work that way. It's not true with unbelievers. They sin right. They sin in the direction that their hearts are bent. So we come along with Jesus' words of liberation and we say, be free. They say, what am I talking about? I, I am free. But don't be fooled. If they're not in Christ, they're not free. The devil has played the ultimate trick on them. Did you catch what he said in verse 38? You do what you have heard from your father. And that leads us to our fourth truth. Jesus' talk of their demonic bloodline is absurd to them. Jesus' talk of their demonic bloodline is absurd to them. Look with me at verses 39 to 47. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, 
And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is because you are not of God. Well, suffice it to say, the Pharisees do not accept Jesus' explanation of their unholy ancestry. They didn't accept it any more than the people on your list of five do. What's disturbing here is not Jesus' belief in their demonic bloodline. We'll see that in the final paragraph, that even the Pharisees uh, believed in the demonic. I'll tell you what's disturbing is that many lost people in your life do not believe in the existence of the one to whom they are enslaved. That's alarming. That's terrifying. You need to remember the truth today. How many remember the money quote from the movie The Usual Suspects? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Most people on your list of five would fall into that category. We've got to remember the truth. There is a whole lot on the line when we are praying for our list of five. We are doing battle with the demonic when we pray. According to Jesus, folks on our list of five are doing the works of their father. They are of their father, the devil, and they stand in need of adoption by the heavenly father. But make no mistake, until that time, Jesus' talk of their demonic bloodline is absurd to them. Fifth and final truth, Jesus' teaching about his glory is maddening to them. Jesus' teaching about his glory is maddening to them. Let's finish our text by reading verse 48 to the end of the chapter. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself 
and went out of the temple. Listen to Jesus, verse 59. You dishonor me. Verse 50, there is one who seeks my glory. Verse 54, the Father who glorifies me. And then the sentence that almost gets him killed right at the end of chapter 8 here, and the one that will get him killed in chapter 19. John 8, 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He is using for himself the, the personal name of the God of Abraham, Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is the name that God revealed himself to Abraham with at the burning, or the, revealed himself to Moses with at the burning bush. This is utterly infuriating to them. They aren't just annoyed, they are angry. And in this case, it turns out on an attempt in his life. Now, the temptations of the Pharisees are not any different than those on your list of five. Not in kind, anyway. Maybe in degree, but not in kind. Jesus' teaching about his glory is maddening to them. So taken together, uh, these truths about people on your list of five, they explain a lot about the difficulty level of our mission. The people that you love and want to see trust Christ feel threatened, confused, unaddressed, misunderstood, and angry about our faith. So what do we do? Well, let's remember this. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is true for us too. There's no temptation that's overtaken our list of five that is not at least in some way or has been common to each one of us. 1 Corinthians 4.7. What do we have that we did not receive? And if we received it, why do we boast as if we did not receive it? Or we could look at this list of formidable obstacles to our mission and think about the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Such were some of us. But we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what do we do? I just have four words to fill in these blanks as we close. So, pray for conviction of sin. Pray for conviction of sin. John 16, 8, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit has been sent into the world to convict the world of unrighteousness. Pray home these sermon points to the hearts of those on your list of five. It is the most gracious thing you could begin to do for them. Secondly, ask God to draw them to Christ. Their unbelief is overcomable. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, except the Father that sent Jesus draws them. God can draw people to his Son. He can grant repentance. He can grant the gift of faith. Ask God to draw them to Christ. Think about the parable of the, uh, the persistent widow in Luke 18, 1 to 8. You've got a list of five. How often do you wake up in the morning and knock? You say, well, I, I prayed. I prayed for those people. Keep knocking. 
God is not an unjust judge. God will grant justice speedily. He will grant mercy to many. Ask him to draw them to Christ. Third, connect them with God's people. This is a piece we miss in our evangelism often, and I feel like maybe I feed it sometimes when I say we gather for worship and we scatter for evangelism. Let's scatter for evangelism together. Two by two, group by group, home by home. Invite unbelievers into your life, into your family, into your living room, into your community group, to a meal on Wednesday night. Invite them to church. Roll the dice. I was kicking myself yesterday because I had a commitment to invite someone today and I didn't. And it was, well, it wasn't too late in the game. I just didn't. Connect people with God's people. In John 1, 39 to 46, John 4, 39 to 42, the conversion of different people hang on their connections into the family of God. Did you notice that? It's not just isolated people getting zapped with the gospel gun. As people are drawn into fellowship, they see who Jesus is. So connect them with God's people, even before they believe. Fourth, invite them to believe and to have life in his name. And I invite you here today, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. If you are with us today, and you understand yourself to be described in this sermon outline. God loves you. He sent his son to die for sinners such as you. Turn from your sins. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus. Have life in his name. It's the purpose of the book that we're studying this winter. So get inside the mind of your list of five. Five truths for those for you to know of those who are far from Christ. Jesus claims to authority a threatening to them. Jesus' words about his work are confusing to them. Jesus' message of liberation is lost on them. His talk of their demonic bloodline is absurd to them. Jesus' teaching about his glory is maddening to them. So pray for them. Connect us with them. And invite them to believe in Jesus. Hold out Christ to them. Next week is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And I promised us last week, I don't make promises very often because I'm not good at keeping them, so I just don't make them. But I promised us last year that I would never again, God helping me, miss an opportunity to blow the trumpet for the unborn on Sanctity of Life Sunday. And that's precisely what we're going to do a week from today, so please pray for that sermon. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please help us to understand people on our list of five, less as projects and more as persons that we are a lot like. Please help us to understand them. Would you help us to take a text like Philippians 4.8 and appreciate them if there is anything worthy of appreciation. May we appreciate it. And there is much. Father, help us to empathize with them. I pray that our eyes would well up with tears as we read this outline. These things are true of folks that are far from Jesus. Help us to empathize. Father, we confess afresh our own sins, our own temptations to these things apart from your grace. And we thank you for the gift of your grace. 
It is only your grace that has made us to differ. So may we have hope in that grace that we stand in. May we have hope in that grace for others today. For the glory of Jesus, we pray it for a brand new year of evangelism together in 2014. For Christ's sake, amen.